0: Hello and welcome to The Angiostos, a project of The Sword in the Cloud. My name is Bill Dykstra. Today is... What is today's date? I didn't even look that up. Today's Fe- February 18th, and today we are commemorating Saints Leo, Pope of Rome, and St. Flavian, Patriarch of Constantinople. I'm excited to be returning to weekly episodes and doing this on the regular again. I... I had a couple of weeks off because I was preparing for that talk on St. Cyril. And um, it just took a little bit more time than usual. We also, you know, lost a vehicle and had to deal with that. So there's a lot of, you know, life issues that you had to deal with. Just some housekeeping stuff. And so now that that's all done with, I can start producing episodes again. And so you five people who are... Core listeners, thanks so much. Uh, I, I don't know how many people listen to this. Anyways, so today I decided to do, yes, St. Leo and St. Flavian. Now, when I had first chosen St. Leo for this week's podcast, I thought that, you know, it was merely going to be uh, kind of a biographical thing, speaking about his life. Um, Pope Benedict did say that it's Leo's pontificate that's one of the most uh, important pontificates in the entire history of the church. And, you know, it, th- there's something to say about that. It is Leo whose great tome was used to fight against the monophysite heresy. However, it isn't only Leo who is commemorated today, but also the patriarch Flavian of Constantinople. Flavian was Leo's contemporary and worked to the same end. To correct the monophysite issue, we are going to see that these two characters, using the influence of their respective sees, were like minded in their aims. So, how about some context to the issue? Whenever there is a church council being spoken of, there is always heresies, characters, factions, and arguments that all orbit the situation. In my preparation for this episode, I have done my best to understand the chaos and distill it down into bite-sized morsels, and after which I'll be reading uh, the Tome of Leo. So we'll begin with the Eutychian controversy. You know when people overcorrect? They react against something that is wrong, but they do so in an unequal proportion, the reaction leads them to an equally problematic position to the one that they oppose. This is what happened in the case of Eutychus. Eutychus was an Archmandrite in Constantinople during the 5th century. His reaction was against Nestorianism. Nestorianism being a Christological heresy destabilizing the divine and human natures of Jesus. For more on this heresy, I have included a link in the show notes. Eutychius' position was that Christ was a hybrid, or fusion, of divine and human elements. The Catholic position is that God had two natures 100% man and 100% God. Eutychius eventually would deny that Christ was consubstantial with humanity. And though a heretic, he wasn't considered diabolical, per se, only unskilled in theology. He believed that he had the Orthodox Catholic position. And for more about Eutychius, I've also included a link. Now, Flavian was the Patriarch of Constantinople, and he held a local synod in 448. And he denounced Eutychius' monophysite, one natured doctrine and excommunicated him. At first, it is Eutychius who attempts to rally the support from Pope Leo. Yet when Leo learns the true nature of the situation from Flavian, he's like, yeah, no, Um, you're the heretic. (laughs) Eutychius, you're wrong. However, Eutychius had a godson who was influential in the Byzantine court, a eunuch by the name of Chrysopheus. He was the chief minister Chrysopheus' endgame was to see his godfather not only be exonerated, but elevated to the Episcopal throne of Constantinople. The emperor, Theodosius II, convened a church council in Ephesus. He placed Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, as the president of the council. Dioscorus was elevated to his position through the help of Chrysopheus. Pope Leo eventually denounced this famously as the Robert the Robber Council, and this should show you that uh, things are not going to go well. Okay, so a quick recap: Eutychius has her- heretical Monophysite views. Flavian, the patriarch, has orthodox views and condemns Eutychius. Chrysopheus is the chief minister to the emperor, and is Eutychius's godson, and he works to have his godfather, Eutychius, become patriarch instead of Flavian. Dioscoros, patriarch, patriarch of Alexandria, uh, who has his position because of Chrysopheus, is made president of the council. So there's a lot of political machinations going on here. Let's continue. So Pope Leo sends his legates to the Council of Ephesus. This is the council that's going on. And they bring with them something called the Tome of Leo, also known as the Epistle of Flavian. It is a defense of the Orthodox doctrine of the two natures of Christ. However, with Dioscoros as the head of the council, the Tome was not read. Instead, Dioscorus opens the doors to a mob of monophysites, the heretics, who proceeded to beat Flavian to a bloody pulp. Flavian is also deposed and Eutychius reinstated. Three days later, Flavian dies from his injuries. He becomes a martyr for what the tome preaches. So, after this council, it looks as if all is lost, but it isn't. Here's what happens. And it's a lesson to always be looking to place yourself on the side of the humble and the Orthodox Catholic position rather than, you know, a political one. As the old saying goes, you live by the sword and you die by it. The emperor Theodosius dies and Marcion and Plucaria take his place as emperor and empress. They have a sordid history with Chrysopheus and have him executed in 451. Emperor Marcion new emperor, convenes the Council of Chalcedon, where they reject the outcome of the Council of Ephesus. Eutychius is excommunicated, and in the affirmation to the Tome of Leo, the acts of the Council famously announce, this is the faith of the Fathers. This is the faith of the Apostles. So we all believe Thus the Orthodox believe. Anathema to him who does not thus believe. Peter has spoken thus through Leo. So that's a short history of the events, very short history of the events of the councils of Constantinople, uh, not Constantinople, uh, of Ephesus and uh, Chalcedon. So let's move on to the Tome of St. Leo. Let's hear what the Pope had to say at the time. Eutychius had no idea how he ought to think about the incarnation of the Word of God, and he had no desire to acquire the light of understanding by working through the length and breadth of the Holy Scriptures. So at least he should have listened carefully and accepted the common and undivided creed by which the whole body of the faithful confess that they believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who has been born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. These three statements wreck the tricks of nearly every heretic. When God is believed to be both Almighty and Father, the Son is clearly proved to be co-eternal with Him, in no way different from the Father Since he was born God from God, almighty from almighty, co-eternal from eternal, no latter in time, not lower in power, not unlike in glory, not distinct in being. The same eternal, only begotten of the eternal begetter, was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. His birth in time in no way subtracts from or adds to that divine and eternal birth of his But its whole purpose is to restore humanity who has been deceived, so that it might defeat death and, by its power, destroy the devil who held the power of death. Overcoming the originator of sin and death would be beyond us, had not he, whom sin could not defile, nor could death hold down, taken up our nature and made it his own. He was conceived from the Holy Spirit inside the womb of the Virgin Mother. Her virginity was as untouched in giving him birth as it was in conceiving him. But if it was beyond Eutychius to derive sound understanding from this, the purest source of the Christian faith, because the brightness of manifest truth had been darkened by his own particular blindness, then he should have subjected himself to the teachings of the gospel. When Matthew says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, Eutychius should have looked up the further development in the apostolic preaching. When he read in the letter to the Romans, Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for God's gospel, which he had formerly promised through his prophets in the holy writings, which refer to his son, who was made for him of David's seed, according to the flesh, he should have paid deep and devout attention to the prophetic text. And when he discovered God making the promise to Abraham that, "...in your seed shall all nations be blessed," He should have followed the apostle in order to eliminate any doubt about the identity of this seed when he says the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say to his seed as if referring to a multiplicity, but to a single one and to thy seed, which is Christ, his inward ear should also have heard Isaiah preaching Quote, Behold, a virgin will receive in the womb and will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. With faith he should have read the same prophet's words, a child is born to us, a son is given to us, his power is on his shoulders. They will call his name, Angel of Great Counsel, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Father, Of the world to come. Then he would not deceive people by saying that the Word was made flesh in the sense that he emerged from the Virgin's womb having a human form, but not having the reality of his mother's body. Or was it perhaps that he thought that our Lord Jesus Christ did not have our nature because the angel who is sent to the Blessed Virgin said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so that which will be born wholly out of you will be called the Son of God. As if it was because the conception of the Virgin was worked by God that the flesh of the one conceived did not share the nature of her who conceived it. But uniquely wondrous and wondrously unique, as the act of generation was, it is not to be understood as though the proper character of its kind was taken away by the sheer novelty of its creation. It was the Holy Spirit that made the virgin pregnant, but the reality of the body derived from the body. As, quote, wisdom built a house for herself, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is... In that flesh which he derived from humankind and which he animated with the spirit of a rational life, so the proper character of both natures was maintained and came together in a single person. loveliness was taken up by majesty, weakness by strength, mortality by eternity, to pay off the debt of our state, invulnerable nature was united to a nature that could suffer, so that in a way that corresponded to the remedies we needed, one and the same mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, could both on the one hand die and on the other be incapable of death. Thus was the true God born in the undiminished and perfect nature of a true man, complete in what is His, and complete in what is ours. By ours we mean that what the Creator established in us from the beginning and what He took upon Himself to restore. There was in the Savior no trace of the things which the deceiver brought upon us and to which deceived humanity gave admittance. His subjection to human weakness in common with us did not mean that he shared our sins. He took on the form of a servant without the defilement of sin, thereby enhancing the human and not diminishing the divine. For that self-emptying, whereby the invisible rendered himself visible, and the Creator and Lord of all things chose to join the ranks of mortals, spelled no failure of power, it was an act of merciful favor. So the one who retained the form of God when he made humanity was made man in the form of a servant. Each nature kept its proper character without loss, and just as the form of God does not take away the form of a servant, so the form of a servant does not detract from the form of God." It was the devil's boast that humanity had been deceived by his trickery, and so had lost the gifts God had given it, and that it had been stripped of the endowment of immortality, and so was subject to the harsh sentence of death. He also boasted that, sunk as he was in evil, he himself derived some consolation from having a partner in crime, and that God had been forced by the principle of justice, to alter his verdict on humanity, which he had created in such an honorable state. All this called for the realization of his secret plan, whereby the unalterable God, whose will is indistinguishable from his goodness, might bring the original realization of his kindness towards us to completion, by means of a more hidden mystery, and whereby humanity, which had been led into a state of sin by the craftiness of the devil, might be prevented from perishing contrary to the purpose of God. So without leaving his Father's glory behind, the Son of God comes down from his heavenly throne and enters the depths of our world, born in an unprecedented order by an unprecedented kind of birth, in an unprecedented order because one who is invisible at his own level was made visible to ours. The ungraspable willed to be grasped. Whilst remaining pre-existent, he begins to exist in time. The Lord of the universe veiled his measureless majesty and took on a servant's form. The God who knew no suffering did not despise becoming a suffering man, and, deathless as he is, to be subject to the laws of death. By an unprecedented kind of birth, because it was inviolable virginity which supplied the material flesh without experiencing sexual desire, what was taken from the mother of the Lord was the nature without the guilt, And the fact that the birth was miraculous does not imply that in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the virgin's womb, the nature is different from ours. The same one is true God and true man. There is nothing unreal about this oneness, since both the lowliness of the man and the grandeur of the divinity are in mutual relation. As God is not changed by showing mercy, neither is humanity Devoured by the dignity received. The activity of each form is what is proper to it in communion with the other. That is, the word performs what belongs to the word, and the flesh accomplishes what belongs to the flesh. One of these performs brilliant miracles. The other sustains acts of violence. As the word does not lose its glory, which is equal to that of the Father, so neither does the flesh leave the nature of its kind behind. We must say this again and again. One and the same is truly Son of God and truly Son of Man. God, by the fact that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, man, by the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God by the fact that all things were made through him and nothing was made without him. Man by the fact that he was made of a woman, made under the law. The birth of the flesh reveals human nature. Birth from a virgin is the proof of divine power. A lowly cradle manifests the infancy of the child. Angels' voices announce the greatness of the Most High. Herod evilly strives to kill one who was like a human being at the earliest stage the Magi rejoiced to adore on bended knee one who is the Lord of all. And when he came to be baptized by his precursor John, the Father's voice spoke thunder from heaven to ensure that he did not go unnoticed because the divinity was concealed by the veil of the flesh. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Accordingly, the same one whom the devil craftily tempts as a man, the angels dutifully wait on as God. Hunger, thirst, weariness, sleep, are patently human. But to satisfy five thousand people with five loaves, to dispense living water to the Samaritan woman, a drink of which will stop her being thirsty ever again, to walk on the surface of the sea, with feet that do not sink, to rebuke the storm and level the mounting waves, there can be no doubt these are divine. So, If I may pass over many instances, it does not belong to the same nature to weep out of deep-felt pity for a dead trend, and to call him back to life again at the word of command once the mound had been removed from the four-day-old grave, or to hang on a cross and, with day changed into night, to make the elements tremble, or to be pierced by nails and to open the gates of paradise for the believing thief." Likewise, it does not belong to the same nature to say, I and the Father are one, and to say, the Father is greater than I. For although there is in the Lord Jesus Christ a single person who is of God and of man, the insults shared by both have their source in one thing, and the glory that is shared in another. For it is from us that he gets a humanity which is less than the Father, It is from the Father that he gets a divinity which is equal to the Father. So it is on account of this oneness of the person, which must be understood in both natures, that we both read that the same Son of Man came down from heaven, when the Son of God took flesh from the virgin from whom he was born, and again that the Son of God is said to have been crucified and buried, since he suffered these things not in the divinity itself, whereby the only begotten is co-eternal and consubstantial with the Father, but in the weakness of the human nature. That is why in the creed, too, we all confess that the only begotten Son of God was crucified and was buried buried, following what the apostle said. If they had known, they would have never have crucified the Lord of majesty. And when our Lord and Savior himself was questioning his disciples and instructing their faith, he says, Who do people say I, the Son of Man, am? And when they had displayed a variety of other people's opinions, he says, Who do you say that I am? I am. In other words, who I am, the Son of Man, and whom you behold in the form of a servant and in real flesh, who do you say I am? Whereupon the blessed Peter, inspired by God and making a confession that would benefit all future people, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He thoroughly deserved to be declared blessed by the Lord. He derived the stability of both his goodness and his name from the original rock. For when the Father revealed it to him, he confessed that the same one is both the Son of God and also the Christ. Accepting one of these truths without the other was no help to salvation. And to have believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was either only God and not man, or solely man and not God, was equally Dangerous. After the Lord's resurrection, which was certainly resurrection of a real body, since the one brought back to life is none other than the one that had been crucified and had died, the whole point of the forty-day delay was to make our faith completely sound and to cleanse it of all darkness. Hence he talked to his disciples and lived and ate with them, and let himself be touched attentively and carefully by those who were in the grip of doubt, he would go in among his disciples when the doors were locked and impart the Holy Spirit by breathing on them and open up the secrets of the Holy Scriptures after enlightening their understanding. Again, he would point out the wound of his side, the holes made by the nails, and all the signs of the suffering he had just recently undergone, saying, Look at my hands and feet, it is I. Feel and see because a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. All this was so that it would be recognized that the proper character of the divine and of the human nature went on existing inseparable in him, and so that he would realize that the word is not the same thing as the flesh, but in such a way that we would confess belief in the one Son of God as being Both word and flesh. This Eutyches must be judged to be extremely destitute of this mystery of the faith. Neither the humility of the mortal life nor the glory of the resurrection has made him recognize our nature in the only begotten of God. Nor has even the statement of the blessed Apostle and Evangelist John put fear into him. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God, and every spirit which puts Jesus asunder is not from God and is Antichrist. But what does putting Jesus asunder consist in, if not in separating his human nature from him, and in voiding, through the most barefaced fictions, the one mystery by which we have been saved? Once in the dark about the nature of Christ's body, it follows that the same blindness leads him into raving folly about his suffering too. If he does not think that the Lord's cross was unreal, and if he has no doubt that the suffering undergone for the world's salvation was real, then let him acknowledge the flesh of the one whose death he believes in. And let him not deny that a man whom he knows to have been subject to suffering had our kind of body, for to deny the reality of the flesh is also to deny the bodily suffering. So if he accepts the Christian faith and does not turn a deaf ear to the preaching of the gospel, let him consider what nature it was that hung, pierced with nails, on the wood of the cross. With the side of the crucified one laid open by the soldier's spear, let him identify the source from which blood and water flowed, to bathe, The Church of God with both font and cup. Let him heed what the blessed Apostle Peter preaches that sanctification by the Spirit is effected by the sprinkling of Christ's blood. And let him not skip over the same Apostle's words, knowing that you have been redeemed from the empty way of life you have inherited from your fathers, not with corruptible gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As a lamb without stain or spot. Nor should he withstand the testimony of Blessed John the Apostle, Quote, and the blood of Jesus the Son of God purifies us from every sin. And again, this is the victory which conquers the world, our faith. Who is there who conquers the world save one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is he. Jesus Christ, who has come through water and blood, not in water only, but in water and blood. And because the Spirit is truth, it is the Spirit who testifies. For there are three who give testimony Spirit, and water, and blood. And the three are one. In other words, the Spirit of sanctification, and the blood of redemption, and the water of baptism. These three are one and remain indivisible. None of them is separable from its link with the others. The reason is that is by this faith that the Catholic Church lives and grows by believing that neither the humanity is without true divinity nor the divinity without true humanity. Amen. Amen. I don't think I realized, oh, my microphone is far away. Hold on, I'll bring it back to where it was. There, you can probably hear me better now. I don't think I realized before um, before recording the Tome of Leo how, and I mean this in a positive way, how congested it is. That it's chock full of stuff. And so it might not be great for listening to. So I will include a link in the show notes to the script, the full text of the Tome of Leo, and you can read through it because, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in it. I think basically what Leo is saying is that to believe Christ is not of two natures is to be incongruent with the Gospels, with the scriptures. And I think that's what we're saying when we face any kind of heresy, that this is not, this is not, um, in symphony with the rest of what we believe. And so, yeah, I really appreciated the Tome of Leo because it, uh, it makes you more aware and makes you appreciate more the, these doctrines of the past that you might not think still hold bearing today, but reveal a lot about the nature or natures of Jesus. And it helps you get to know him more. I mean, the more you know the object of the thing that you love, the more you love it. And so I really appreciate this for that. I also appreciate the fact that Flavian and Leo are both commemorated today. And I think back in the episode on St. Cyril, I think I'm also showing the same thing, that the East and West dichotomy, there can be a lot of harmony there, and there doesn't need to be, you know... Division And, you know, it doesn't need to be a contentious dichotomy when it, when it, um, when it is there. In our story today, we have the, the teachings of the Pope of Rome, and we have the martyrdom for those teachings, in a sense, by the, for the same doctrine by the patriarch of Constantinople. And I think that's a, a beautiful symbol there. And one that I was happy to find today. So anyways, I think in the next couple of weeks what I'll be doing just to give you a heads up, I'll be releasing episodes probably on Sundays. Um I'm thinking of going over the Sundays of Lent because we we uh talk about different saints throughout those Sundays, people who help us on the way to to Pascha. Uh all the way through Great Lent and I'm going to so I'm going to be doing episodes on them. I'm not full disclosure I'm not too sure what I'm going to do about Palamis. Palamis is a contentious guy, and I don't know if I have the capacity at this time to really do him service, to give him his due. But maybe I'll try. Maybe I'll talk about his Mariology, because he has an awesomely high Mariology um, that I really appreciate. But uh, we'll just have to see and find out. What I'll be talking about, I think. What I'll do is, I'll when, when once I'm confident that I understand and have a grasp on who Palamas is, I might do a special on him, not on a not on his commemoration, but just a special sometime in the future. I think that would be fun. Anyways, that's all for me for today. Thanks very much for listening. This has been your daily dose of Agios Saints Leo and Flavian. Pray for us.